0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Dr. Jim canix He is a researcher, an author, a podcaster, a writer. He's heavily involved in the transformation of teams, helping them build elite, diverse teams. And we're going to dig deep into what diversity really means and what it doesn't mean and how many organizations have deluded themselves into believing they've created diverse talent pool, uh, whereas in fact, what they've created is an echo chamber. Uh, we're gonna look at some of the blind spots, some of the acts of idiocy and uh, narcissistic entitlement, uh, like pulse surveys once a year, thinking that's somehow gonna generate engagement. We're going to look at the incongruence between the stated mission and values and the execution you know what happens when this happens around here how do people behave how do people respond are we making it possible for diverse teams uh, groups of people to join our company and stay or are we hiring for difference and firing for not fitting in so jim welcome
1: thanks for having me marcus uh, that's uh, that's a phenomenal intro i uh, i hope i don't get fired after running my mouth on this <laughs> <laughs>
0: Excellent. Okay. Would you mind giving us 60 to 90 seconds on your history so people understand your background?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the short version of my history is I'm just a big-ass nerd. So I've been in the talent strategy space for probably a couple decades at this point. You know, I've, I've always been passionate in, in terms of understanding why people join and leave organizations. And to give you a sort of a Cliff Notes version of where my career has been, I've probably sat at the intersection of technology uh, and talent my entire career. I've been on the staffing and recruitment side in a client-facing capacity and also recruiting candidates for their roles as well. I've been on the talent uh, technology and ATS and CRM side. And now I'm uh, I'm working for Circa, which is an end-to-end talent strategy solution that leads into the marketplace with a DEI-first approach. So our vision as an organization is to be an organization that leads with DEI from pre-hire to retire. And obviously, that's an iterative process in building that out. So aside from that, you know, just like most immigrants, I have like 16 different jobs. I run the Cascading Leadership Podcast. I'm the co-host and co-founder of that. And I'm also the co-host and co-founder of the Talent Strategy 60 Podcast. So a lot of stuff, married, three kids, all that stuff.
0: Okay, well, let's start with some definitions. First of all, what is D, E, and I? So let's get that. And those three words defined.
1: Sure. And DEI, in a broad sense, actually incorporates a lot more than just those three letters. So DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. But actually, if you want to encompass the full arc of what that diversity movement or diversity initiative looks like, you need to include belonging and you need to include allyship as well. So it's an entire... Allyship. So... This is where it gets kind of tricky in terms of definitions, because some of this stuff is a moving target. So allyship means you're not in any of these diverse classes. You're not a member of that class, but you're supportive of getting the people in those classes, a seat at the table, a voice, an opportunity to be heard, seen and heard on an equal basis. I think when you look at the D, E, and I spectrum, there's two schools of thought. One is the us versus them mentality, which I don't prescribe to. And the other one is how do we build consensus as a group, wide and broad consensus so that we're giving everybody fair access to all the resources that are out there in the world so that they can actually move their career, move their lives forward. And I'm in that camp. The story that I draw from that is if my 20-year-old self wouldn't, wouldn't recognize who I am right now, Because, and the only reason I've I've come to be the person that I am right now is that I've had a lot of people with a lot of different viewpoints approach me in a way that was constructive. But if you're approaching diversity, equity, inclusion, allyship, belonging, from the perspective of good versus evil, us versus them. You're never going to get broad-based momentum in actually making the kind of impact that you have in in the world. So that's why I take that course versus the hard black and white course.
0: So let's define the words of diversity, equity, and inclusion as well, because I think one of the major problems we have um, is that people find difference because of ambiguity, and then you have mismatched expectations. So let's be clear. Uh, what those three words mean, so that when we're referencing them, we've got a clear common point of reference?
1: Yeah. So I I think when you think about diversity, I don't know if it's even the broader world, but a lot of people fall in the category of, well, diversity just means race and gender. And that's completely not true. Diversity incorporates all sorts of different elements of the human condition. So it, it obviously includes, it includes race, gender, sexual orientation is a component of it. There is veteran status. There's age. There's visible and invisible disabilities that factor into it. There's you know any number of things.
0: Neurodiversity.
1: That, what's that? Yeah, neurodiversity, neurodiversity is really is, is, is yep, absolutely. And basically, it's it's factoring in and 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 allowing space. For diversity in all of its different devi- uh, it, it, definitions or, or all of its different versions, to have a seat at the table in your organization, socioeconomic status is 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 also, you know, an element of diversity that you should be factoring in when you're when you're thinking about your talent strategy. Okay, and equity. So equity wow. is equal access. Everybody is treated the same way. And and, and I'll kind of dra- draw a parallel this way. So let's just talk about simple terms. And when you look at gender, when you look at the CEO population of the Fortune 500, there's somewhere around 20 women who are CEOs of the Fortune 500. And I mean, you can do the math right there. That's not an equitable situation. If you're talking about just purely equal access to opportunity. That's clearly not the case. And the conversation shouldn't be, why aren't there more women in CEO positions in the Fortune 500? That's not the question that you ask. The question that you ask is, why are there so many men that are broadly overrepresented in the executive suite as senior leaders, as CEOs of these Fortune 500 uh, companies? That's the question. And then you can break that down across any number of different demographic criteria. But equity is, is, is equality of access is, does everybody have the same chance and are they treated the same when they're up for a certain position within an organization? You can drill that down to, you know, the dust level. You know, how are you hiring and compensating men versus women in your individual contributor roles? Is that an equitable process that you have in place?
0: Okay, and
1: inclusion. So inclusion is is similar in and, and I'm not an expert in the dei space, so i want to I want introduce that caveat. This is just something that i've I've actually grown into. Inclusion is making sure that everybody has a seat at the table and their voice is heard. So when you're looking at any initiative within an organization, you need to have a broad-based coalition of your employees and of your leadership and of your philosophy within your organization. That is offering feedback, and that feedback is being listened to and used to shape what that initiative takes or what form that initiative takes as you move forward in uh, in, in in driving that initiative.
0: I, I was watching um a snippet of a program last night, and it was about the challenge that black girls in the u k face because of the lack of access to resources. Uh, but also how often their identity is suppressed. And so the, the question then comes to mind around having positive difference and you know po- positive uh, discrimination. But that's such a divisive topic. And I'm wondering, how do you create a fair environment where uh, you can give people who come from a disadvantaged background the opportunity to catch up and play at the table and be heard, because in my experience, diverse groups of people looking at the same problem come up with way more elegant, sustainable solutions with far fewer unintended consequences and hidden costs than teams of homogenized thinkers. So I I really want to encourage this, but I want to do it in such a way that doesn't create this divisive them versus us uh, scenario. So how do we do that?
1: That's a really interesting question uh, and problem. I don't know if we can solve it in 60 minutes. But what I will say is the road to solving that problem often starts at the entry points. Hiring organizations and talent strategy uh, leaders within any number of companies, and, and you'll have to send me the, uh, the study that you referenced in the UK. But what's happening more often than not is people aren't even getting a shot. And when you think about it, I'll draw draw the parallel from the recruiting world. Your typical recruiter spends about eight seconds on a resume or a CV before deciding whether that person goes in the in pile or the out pile. Yeah. So if that person's on LinkedIn and they have a picture, there's bias, conscious or unconscious, that can either include or exclude somebody from a shot. They have an ethnic name, like my last name is Ethnic AF, but somebody looks at that and says, well, that, that guy looks foreign according to his last name. So I'm not going to give that person a shot. You have all of these different things that at the entry levels of organizations, people are being excluded from, from participating. And that creates a cascading effect as people move through their career. So it's not a question of, Hey, it's not a uh, zero sum game. For other people to have an opportunity doesn't mean that you're going to lose opportunities. The, the the issue is that there are vast majorities of people, the global majority, are left out of opportunities simply based on conscious or unconscious bias that happens at the entry point of the hiring process.
0: This is the thing that, a question that keeps going through my head. Why is it that we consistently choose to find the least effective way of doing things, And then find ways of justifying that as if it's somehow written by some deity in stone. I I look at virtually every process in sales and marketing, in the recruitment process, and I'm shocked at how wasteful they are and willfully, knowingly wasteful. And and the the response of leadership tends to be, well, just do more. And the, the conflation that more is better, more isn't better, more is more, better is better. Uh, You have to make a conscious decision. So on that note, um, why diversity? Because it's so easy to just look for what feels familiar and go with people you know and you're comfy with. What's the, uh, the, the economic argument for diversity?
1: Well, the economic argument, let's take diversity off the table right now and just talk about the economics of it. Every employer, whether you're talking about peak economic times or down economic times is always talking about we can't find enough good people for our jobs. So if nothing else, your typical position will stay open for 60 days. That's burning money. If nothing else, you should be looking at broadening your candidate pool in any number of ways to solve that issue. So in the US, the typical job stays open anywhere from 45 to 60 days, depending on the type of role. So if you're dealing with that, you got to think about the impact that it's having on your organization. Somebody left your organization, that role is open. Everybody else on the team is picking up the slack and that has impact to their well-being from a mental, physical, social perspective. How much overtime are you running? Because you're running quote unquote lean, are you seeing a lot of sick time? That has a cost to it. So not only are you spending, you know, on average, four to $6,000 every 30 days that a position is left open that compounds across your entire organization so if we're going to talk about the economic imperative by you deliberately as a as a talent leader or as a leader of an organization saying we're only going to look for this type of person this you know i like people from xyz organization i don't like people from abc organization so let's go find more people from xyz you're compounding your own issues so that's without even considering any diversity component to it that's just the simple facts if you are concerned about getting more candidates to your positions to your open positions diversity's got to be a central element of your strategy just from a candidate volume perspective when you
0: consider that well over 80% of the population of the planet has brown or non pink skin at least half is female and the majority are of low income bracket. But these are people who face challenges, who face uh, obstacles, who have to overcome these problems with limited resources and constraints and with obstacles and with resistance and a, a gun at their head. And they still come through and you don't even look at them. It's
1: insane it's absolutely insane and and I'll actually draw two great examples from people who I've interviewed nicola glozes she's the ceo of aetha so aetha is a tech startup so she's already a unicorn in that she's a female founder of a tech company so if you have an understanding of what you know, big tech or at least modern tech startup looks like it's it's predominantly white, it's predominantly male, and you have a female founder who, who did it. So when I was interviewing her, one of the things that she mentioned was that part of what changed her worldview in terms of how she thinks about diversity in general was her trip to South Africa. And she referenced this This one person who's known as the spinach king of South Africa. And apparently, Richard Branson actually did a profile on this person, and I forget his name. But this is a person who is living on less than $2 a day. And one of the things that he wanted to do was build a garden so that he has some sustainability or can self sustain. The issue was poor soil quality, poor resources to create a greenhouse. And what he did is that he found other people in his village to collect discarded plastic bottles, reformatted those things, or at least constituted those things to magnify sunlight coming into a plot of land that allowed for the spinach to grow. And now this is like one of the top entrepreneurs in that market. And the reason why I drew that story out goes right to your point about, you have so many people that are in the low income bracket globally, but they have things that you can't teach, grit, resilience, ingenuity, all of these sort of things. And that's just one example of how that can be applied in any job function. And that's what gets missed. There's another startup founder, Omar Sadiq of uh, of Trainio. He's a UK guy.
0: Omar and Sinele Partners, is a
1: Yeah, Yep. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've had Omar on my show and uh, I had him. I timed his episode right when Trenio launched. And one of the things that he talked about was, look, you have most sales organizations staffed by visually diverse people, maybe, but there is no economic or socioeconomic diversity associated with those uh, teams. And what TrainYo does is that they, along with many other, a handful of other organizations, is that they open up access to those SaaS sales jobs to underrepresented communities. And again, he says the same thing. There are things that you learn when you're poor, whether you're talking about poor in the Western sense or poor in the global sense, that people in the middle class or upper middle class just don't, you can't teach them. It's very rare to teach them. And that that's a recipe for success, especially when you look at you know sales as a function.
0: one of my programs is uh, hiring winners, and it's about predictive hiring. So you hire James Bond instead of james bean and uh, the The idea being that what you're looking at is stuff that will give you a really good indication of whether someone will succeed in the role for which you are hiring them, and will they get the job done and What's really interesting about that is at previous experience. Uh, The research, I think it was Gallup did this. The previous experience adds nothing to the outcome other than a slightly faster ramp up when you're hiring salespeople. However, previous exposure to similar challenges is a really powerful indicator because they've had to think about the problem and they've had to ask themselves those questions around it. And I think one of the things that frustrates me about the recruitment industry is how Complicit the recruiters are uh, with bad hiring practices at employers. Because I see employers cut and paste job descriptions for the people they've just fired and then go out and look for someone just like them. You know, stuff like this is baffles me because you can eliminate so many of your management problems at source by not hiring the wrong people.
1: Wow, there's there's a lot to unpack there, Marcus. So <laughs> Let, let me start at the biggest picture when you're talking about the recruitment industry and drill down from there. I think when you're looking at some of the things that recruitment, whether you're talking about the agency side or internal talent acquisition, and, and I think I'll probably stick to the agency side. When you're talking about recruitment from the agency space, a lot of the, the, the people or many of the people that work there are probably just trying to get the deal. And getting the deal means just doing what the customer says, instead of like actually challenging some of the things that they are, the, the customer is actually saying. And here's what I mean. You know, when I was in that same position, and when I built teams in recruitment, I always put the imperative on when you're talking to a hiring manager, talk in terms of what this person needs to deliver in terms of outcomes versus their time in seat measurables. Because the time that they've spent in a particular seat has no bearing, as you mentioned, on success. What they've actually done during their time there is actually what's critical because when you look at it from a recruitment perspective, you're recruiting to the outcomes. And that actually broadens your candidate pool. You can find somebody that is two years of experience that has done this particular thing three or four times over in those two years Or you can find somebody that has like 10 or 15 years of experience while the company is looking for six that is expert in this space. And you broaden out your candidate pool, which actually delivers the desired outcome for the employer. But more, what what happens is that a lot of reps or a lot of recruiters don't have the courage to like broaden that out. Oh, you want a person with this many years of this, this many years of that. You need this technology. Okay, let me find you three people that look like that. Which one do you want to hire? And that's that's just order taking. That's it's word uh, that. Search. It's it. I'm sorry. What was that? It,
0: it's nothing more than a game of word search. Yeah, exactly. It, you're just circling the words and trying to find yeah you know, the, the ones on the list and crossing and, them off.
1: And guess what, Marcus? You and I are are going to be at a conference together. That's the stuff that gets you automated out of a job. AI will be able to like word search and match up stuff cool. and send it to a a hiring manager, if that's all you're doing. I'm very
0: clear about where I think the market is going to go. And it's going to happen very soon. And I think about 40% of sales jobs will evaporate completely. Because they're frankly surplus to requirements. They could be replaced by Siri, Alexa, or an intelligent website. Because they do little more than act as a brochure on on the end of the phone. Another 30 to 40% will go into the channel particularly within tech, we're already 70% of global trade goes through uh, channels, but most people don't even know that they have a channel. So they're ignoring that massive opportunity. But I think what will happen is people will look for partners uh, who understand their business. Vendors who are trying to transact all the time and worrying about this month, this quarter's uh, target have little or no interest in the long term. And that's what customers want is to feel safe
1: I want to tag in on something that you just said, Marcus, about 40% of the sales workforce is going to get obliterated. That's my word, not yours. I'm paraphrasing. No, no, it's mine too. I'll, I'll run with it. <laughs> and you know who's at fault for that? It's I'm it's every investors. No. Well, yeah. I put the blame on every single manager of a sales team that just says, call more, email more, complicit. more, 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 more. more. That that pure volume mentality. And you and I have been you know on the receiving end of how many of these LinkedIn messages where you connect with somebody and then you have a six paragraph blip that shows up immediately after that. Yeah. That is how you get automated out of a job. And actually, a lot of platforms are actually automating that step so that once it actually triggers a level of engagement, then it moves to a more senior rep. And instead of like, Teaching people how to have conversations, or how to connect with people as humans, we're just teaching people to do. I don't know. I mean, you could you could train a monkey to push buttons, and that's really
0: what what you're doing. This is the problem because what they've done is they've they've tried to turn a relationship role into a componentized factory based function where you don't actually have a window to the customer, or if you do. Uh, your window to the customer is entirely selfish. Um, yep. Because if you don't hit this number, you're fired or you're on a pip. And this is why I think the, the whole topic of diversity is really important. Because if you get those people who are in the sh- at the sharp end to sit down and actually tell you what they're hearing from customers, if you listen to what they tell you they need in order to be able to do their job, and again, I grant you, there will be a certain amount of whining and excuses, but you have to create the conditions for them to thrive and to do their best work, because that's how you create engagement. That's how you create people who, uh, who want to work for you, uh, within your business. And you become a destination employer. That becomes an asset. I mean, yep. Imagine having top talent queuing up to join your business versus where you are at the moment.
1: Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that. So that is, that is a great point that you mentioned, but here's how it's backwards or not, not that point, but here's how organizations have it backwards from their sales effectiveness perspective. What does most sales training consist of? Most sales training. Yeah, it's product. It is not problem. Like I've talked to so many startup founders And they've gone through the same journey. Hey, I I created this awesome product and went looking for a problem and it didn't work. And as soon as I started talking to my customers about what problems that they were having, that actually helped me accelerate the product to the marketplace. So what does that tell you? But a lot of sales training is basically, let's, let's make you an expert on the product. And you call a customer. If I'm calling you, Marcus, out of the blue, and I say... Hey, Marcus, this is Jim from XYZ Company. How are you? Which is a crappy opener. You're going to say, you're going to say, My PFO. hemorrhoids are hissing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you're going to give me a PFO. But if if you indulge <laughs> that conversation, and then the next thing that I say is, well, hey, we're a company that does all of these great things and we can solve all your problems for you. Let's Let's have 15 minutes. That's when you give me the PFO and Ooh, and, and and yeah <laughs> and and that is that's how we're training people how to sell
0: what we're training them to do is burn through cash because if you look at the economics of it bad hires are in my experience the single highest hidden cost in any business and the higher up they go the more expensive the mistake becomes because the impact going down the the, the organization if you are a manager and you compromise on one of your uh, new hires for the team, what message do you send to the other members of the team? How yeah. quickly are they going to start resenting carrying this person?
1: I think you and I have both experienced this throughout our careers. And I don't know how hard and fast this rule is, but you know, my philosophy was you hire deliberately. And once somebody is in the seat, you give them all the tools that they need to be successful. You support them. But there's, there's a point where you have to be able to say, hey, this isn't working. This isn't the right fit. But you're only justified in saying that if you've done everything that you possibly can from a people process technology perspective to help this person get to that next level. And I would argue a lot of organizations don't do that either. It's keep the revolving door.
0: The human cost is obscene the financial cost is obscene, the lie that they're peddling, that they're somehow serving shareholder value by behaving in this way, is just a fabrication. Because all it is, is just an abuse of power. Because there there is no uh, upside except for a tiny handful of people. Um, And this, I think, is part of the culture of having a, in the green room, you said something um, which really caught my attention, and I, want, uh, I wanted to bring it up. We were talking about salespeople having the vulnerability to step forward, and uh, you used this uh, wording. You said a competitor on their team. Now, what sort of idiotic leadership framework thinks that having you waste energy competing internally Instead of competing externally, is a good use of anyone's energy or resources. Why not try and have everybody achieve quota instead
1: of have uh, some people suffer? Well, I mean, the proof is in the pudding, right? You have all sales training, or a vast majority of sales training, being product focused. The great, and then, and and you have all of your messaging being self-serving, you have very little customer research and in, in, in qualification in terms of who your ideal customer is, very few sales organizations will actually be able to tell you what the customer journey looks like. And then we're shocked that close to 70% of sales professionals are going to miss quota this year. And
0: bear in mind, this is in the same seven-year period we've seen quota attainment drop from 65 to close to 30. At the same time, that technology, allegedly to help us in marketing, sales, sales enablement, and all of that shit, has exploded onto the scene. This is a trillion-dollar-a-year market when you take into account all the ancillary services that had burgeoned off the back of this, and yet people are performing worse and worse and worse. What the hell is going on?
1: So I'll uh, I'll give you a story. I think... uh, My managers used to get irritated with me when I would do this when I was selling. So when I'm in an early stage opportunity or an early stage conversation with a prospect, one of the things that I'm trying to understand is what's their current process for X, Y, and Z thing? You know, How do you do this? How do you do this? Typical other other organizations have dealt with this problem this way. And you would be amazed at how many... Companies and leader or functional leaders within organizations, not, not just sales, any organization would would not be able to define out the process for executing a certain task. And they're in a software eval. And I would say, look, when you're looking at fixing a problem, there's a people process and technology solution component to fixing the problem. You're not dealing with a technology problem right now. because you haven't been able to define the process for executing these tasks, and I've talked to multiple people within your organization that have the same problem. You're dealing with a process issue, not a technology issue. You need to get your process lined up and then measure and evaluate whether it's a technology gap or something else. And you know, sales leaders would get irritated with me because I would back out of a deal, or at least a potential opportunity and close it out because you know what good would it do for us to sell them? Hundreds of thousands of dollars is
0: going to churn, or be really pissed off with you. That's short-term thinking, though. And so, the, uh, the the question I have for you is this: Then, Jim, what do we need to do in terms of rethinking what we consider to be fit for purpose in the management layer?
1: Wow, that is a really good question, and I think if I'm tackling that, it starts with hiring. And it starts with hiring in a very specific way. If I'm looking at somebody coming into a leadership role or a management role within my sales organization, I want demonstrated history of staying within organizations, you know, four to six years. Why that number? Your typical sales manager turns out of an organization every 18 months. And looks for the next opportunity. So, if you want to build a sales organization that is customer centric with a long view in mind, with not only for not only acquisition, but also retaining those customers, you need to have leadership in place that has shown that they have staying power and is philosophically designed to win the long game versus the quarter by quarter, where are you at quota? Let's discount everything under the sun mentality. That discount, everything, volume, everything play is what gets you an 18-month shelf life within an organization. So I would probably start there in terms of my strategy of building if I'm hiring for the long term. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the answer I got.
0: I like it. And it's certainly part of the way there. I mean, my, my, my thinking is that There's too much reacting and not enough uh, thinking and planning ahead. If you design the business that you intend to become in three years' time, and you've identified the functions, the roles that you're going to need to execute on that, you can work backwards in six-month increments as to the progress that someone in this role for which I am hiring, progress they need to make, and the milestones they need to achieve so that we, in concert, all achieve the outcome we intended together. So there's a job to be done by the business. Each of us has our component that we have to execute towards that job to be done. And each role has their main job to be done in terms of contributing to the overall mission. And if you plan uh, the roles that way, and you work backwards from the three-year outcome, the two-year outcome, the one-year, six-month, three-month, then the person knows what progress they have to make. And our job is to create the conditions so they can thrive and they can achieve their full potential. And also that the milestones are 100% within their control because then they are fully accountable. They can't say, oh, it wasn't my fault. But equally, our job is to make sure that they are supported and they have the resources and tools that they need.
1: So it's interesting that you draw out that roadmap because it, draws a really strong distincti- distinction to where I'm at right now. Because one of the things that, you know, from an organizational vision that Circa has is that, you know, three to five years from now, we want to be the type of organization and this is this is actually from the CEO down. So everybody within our org structure is bought into this you know, three to five years from now, we want to be the type of sales organization where we've built out sort of a demand engine. More of our leads are coming in from our inbound versus being generated from outbound. So how are we actually going to execute this? We're going to actually empower people at all levels of the organization to evangelize uh, according to what they believe in that's in conjunction with our organization. So that's one step. The other step, you mentioned this earlier, is we're going to expand our partnership ecosystem so not only are we going to look at direct selling as a as a channel we're going to look at partner selling with organizations that see things similarly and are complementary to our go to market and bring them in so this is an example of how you work backwards from there but i think one of the things that that that's really interesting about what you just mentioned is very few organizations will have the discipline to work backwards that way. It's all about, and, and again, it goes to your point about driving shareholder value. We we want the next quarterly report to look great. Who cares if we're just bringing forward stuff that would have happened six months or nine months, and we've discounted the hell wait. out of it. Yeah. Uh, and we've discounted the hell out of it to bring it in now. That's That's a backwards way of thinking. And it's actually... It's 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 how you absolutely destroy every rep's credibility up front because now they're going to the market, now they're going to their customers with commission breath. Yeah. And I've been in environments where people are offering discounts when somebody has even expressed, you know, a buying signal, but it's a buying signal in the form of a question. Mm-hmm. And instead of Probing for more detail on the question. Oh well, if that's a concern, we can give you a discount. Like, what are you doing?
0: <laughs> uh, one of my coaching clients had pressure from his VP to try and bring a deal forward, and uh, they were told that they could discount up to eighty percent. So naturally, he refused because he was already two hundred and seventy-four percent equator, and he just planted his feet. Six. Uh, so two weeks later, it landed for an additional six hundred kGP. Now. That's half his annual target. And he was being put under pressure by some Egypt who wanted to try and make a valuation number. To hell with that. This, I think, is part of the problem, because leadership and management have become complicit because they've, been part, they've become part of the investor's end game because the investors are interested in raising the next fund. And the valuation is geared around driving existing investors to reinvest or new investors to come in. And that's their primary focus. And as a result, that filters through the culture of the organization. Now, when you add to that bias, and if I was a shareholder, I would be livid that these people believe it's okay to squander 97% of my resource and give away at least 500% of profit margin, 300% of compound year-on-year share price growth. It's insane.
1: I don't have an argument with you on that. But you know the other thing that I'll point out is shareholders and, and, and private equity firms are the same folks that have in some ways given fuel to the idea that diversity in general doesn't impact the bottom line of an organization. So you can't have it both ways. There's still a broad segment of the hiring population at, even at the executive levels that think, Diversity, or DEI, and everything that's associated with it, is a nice to have. But when the chips are down, we're not going to fu- we're, we're not going to buy into that fluffy stuff. We're going to focus on activity. So and, and it's it's an interesting contrast.
0: It's mirrored also in the funding because if I remember my stats correctly, half a percent of the uh, VC funding went to Black and African uh, American investments, one percent to um, women. I think it was, and two uh, percent to Asian men. That was pretty much it. The rest was all bros and white middle-aged men.
1: This is where, where you know, I have I have a broad network, and a lot of my African American uh, leaders within my network get irritated with the performative nature of DEI across many organizations. You know, a lot of organizations are just using this as a check the box so that it it doesn't piss anybody off. And right. doing the bare minimum. Okay, you know, let's, so I've, let... got
0: the que- I've got the question. Yeah, how do we turn DE&I into a profit center? How, how do we make it so profitable that it's the only way you can behave?
1: I mean, I would argue that it that the data is right there. I mean, think about it this way: you look at the two largest cohorts of the employee landscape, and that's millennials and Generation Z. Three quarters of that cohort. And I think millennials are going to be 75% of the global workforce by 2025. So most of them are in hiring. So three quarters of millennials and Generation Z are making their join and leave decisions of organizations based on that organization's commitment to building a diverse workforce. So if that doesn't tell you anything, just by the simple fact that if you just want to simply retain people and fill your roles faster, if you don't pay attention to these things, you're going to lose money. I don't know what's going to convince you. If you think about it, let's say you have 100 people in your workforce, Your 100 people in your workforce, the vast majority of them are millennials, and 75% of them leave, each replacement for that employee can cost you up to 200% of their annual salary to replace them. So if you're not concerned about attracting talent, if you're not concerned about keeping the talent that you have, And you don't understand how diversity is shaping the candidate landscape and candidate behavior. I don't know what to tell you.
0: Well, those are the cheap end of the costs. Because if you make the wrong hire, uh, which you will if you're going to pick from a limited pool and you have to pick a compromised candidate because of your biases, in enterprise, I have a calculator, which I'm very happy to share with anyone. An uh, enterprise high ticket sales, it can cost you 35 to 125 times their salary. Now, if that isn't enough to wake up the CFO, I don't know what is.
1: That's the golden question. And here's the thing. You have so much data out there in terms of the employee landscape about what is important to your average candidate. And you yet you have strategy at the corporate level which is insistent on being lumped in in the same sea of sameness as everything else from branding, from positioning in the marketplace. Let's just be boring and not really pay attention to what our employees are saying are important to them or what our candidates are saying is important to them. We don't want to offend anybody. So we're just going to be vanilla. And vanilla is is fine you know, if you're into that sort of thing, but you know, it's not going to, it's not going to win you any awards.
0: Well, it's, it's actually probably the worst strategy in this market, because if you don't adapt, then you're going to come up against the weather and it's going to beat the crap out of you.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I always talk in terms of building an attraction model and that applies at the dust level and it applies at the corporate level. You have to have a point of view. You have to stay, say what you believe in rather than have these, you know, grandiose mission, vision, value statements that end up, you know, on the wall somewhere in some boardroom and never really get looked at or talked about or executed. You actually have to start living those things because that stuff matters to the vast majority of the workforce. And if you're not doing that, you're going to struggle.
0: A really good question I picked up from one of my guests recently is what's on the standing agenda for meetings? Leadership because chances are culture doesn't even show, or people don't show, except where you're complaining about them. Um, yeah, um, you, you look at how meetings are structured. I i, I look at uh, the weekly ass kicking, um, the pipeline review where you're listening to 10 other people lie through their teeth about the work of fiction that they fabricated on Excel. It's so much time, which is unrecoverable, is wasted, and every time you have your team there, you need to multiply the cost part by their hourly cash generation target. So if it, if they're on four grand a day, which is a tw- 1.2 million uh, target, every hour is 500 pounds per person. Um, now you start tossing up the cost of those meetings where no learning happens, where no progress happens, and you've got to begin to wonder, if it was the manager's money, would they be quite so profligate? and then you start looking up the chain of command, and you hear what they're telling people to do in terms of their behaviors and so on. Is it any wonder that we're now seeing, I saw a study last week, 73% of the US workforce is expected to have tried to change jobs in 2022.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's not surprising. And that bubbling underneath has existed for a while. And, and here are some other things that, that need to be factored in. Again, going back to the biggest chunks of the employee landscape, you know, when you're looking at Generation Z and the millennial workforce, you know, almost 85% of them are expecting their organizations to provide some sort of training or professional development as part of that contract that exists when they join organizations? How many organizations are doing that? You know, you talk about the, the the pipeline review meetings where everybody's writing or talking about their fan fiction. Well, Mm. where does, where does that problem start? You've built an entire organization on more, do more calls, do more emails, do more of this, that, and the other thing. And you called it out earlier, Marcus, we're confusing activity with achievement. Mm. So You pretend that activity is going to lead to all these sort of things. And then you're forcing your employees to build a story off of all of this raw activity. And then your prescription for solving the problem that exists when people aren't meeting their targets or aren't trending their targets is what? Well, do more. Why in the world am I going to do more of the crap that isn't working? Right. Okay. But I think I've figured it out.
0: Thank you. Okay. I've made a connection because it's um over half well about 60% of buying cycles end up in um no decision and no decision close lost but over half of those according to Matt Dixon's latest research end up being lost because the salesperson when they when they the buyer is ready to buy they have a budget they're willing the team is on side they have approval and then they go dark now oh I think it's 52% end up or 58% end up In that situation. And what the seller is trained to do is to go back and try and ratchet up the pain or to paint the picture of the better future instead of actually go back and listen to what the anticipated buyer's remorse is. What they fear is that if they put their ink on contract and it's their signature, they will get blamed if things go wrong. And so, what the seller needs to do at that point is go back and find out what that fear is and either mitigate the risk or allay the concern and that way you could be winning another 30% but so this is difficult it takes thought it takes a change in behavior
1: this stuff is hard so it's 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 absolutely hard and we're not doing sales professionals any favors by encouraging them to deal with one buyer and that's that's the other part of what you just described is You know, many sales organizations are teaching their reps to find the one person that will talk to them and not to talk to anybody else within the organization. And again, this is where that short term focus comes in, because if you're only looking at weekly and quarterly stuff, you're going to deal with one buyer, you're going to have a 20% win rate, instead of actually using a multi channel, multi threaded approach that starts at the user level and goes up and goes from the executive level down and across. The typical complex sale has anywhere from six to 11 people involved in the buying committee.
0: We're seeing up to 16 now. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, was at the CRO conference a couple of months ago and uh, lots of them were finding at their enterprise sales level, it was six, up to 16. Um, and you got to remember, there's evaluators and decision makers, and they're yep. not necessarily the same. They can be, but you need to engage with all of them. And this, is, you can't do that inside of one or two quarters. You've got to do that over time. So you've got to focus on the medium term. And virtually all of these problems are, fix, uh, are fixable if you start shifting your time perception. I learned a beautiful lesson this week, uh, which is what if you are the present moment? Where is your attention? if that's the case. It's on the here and now. Yeah. It's not about the past. It's not about the future. What well, you're not thinking about. It. You're not thinking about your commission. You're not thinking about your next question. You're not thinking about when you can interrupt. You're just present. It takes all the pressure off us. And I think part of this issue is that certainly in uh, Western business, we have this really terrible concept of time, which unfortunately we don't have time to talk about now. But I'd love to discuss this again with you. It's been really fascinating. Jim, tell me this. Uh, We've come to the top of the hour.
1: If you had your best mistake in hiring. My best mistake in hiring. You're going to have to give me some context in that because I've made a lot of mistakes hiring. So I I, The ones that
0: you either learn a really valuable lesson or where you made a decision and you thought it had gone awry and then
1: suddenly it worked out. But at the time you were, you, know, you wouldn't. So, okay. That. So there, the, it's, it's a two in one actually. So mistake number one and a lot of startup folks will fall into this is the idea that, Hey, I'm launching business X who is my best competitor in business X and let me hire their biggest or their best salesperson and bring them over because then I can replicate that level of success within my organization. So I've done that before. And it rarely if ever works. So if you're in and, and for the Generation Z and millennials that are listening, never hire the Rolodex. Hire for the Rolodex because it's, it's, it's more often than not going to fail. Just because somebody has a massive community and has massive success in some other organization that's related to what you do, doesn't mean that that's uh, going to translate over. Past performance is not a predictor of future success. So that's one. But the other thing that I've learned, and that's the flip side of this, is when hiring, you should always have a lens towards the things that you can't teach, grit, resilience, ingenuity, resourcefulness. Those things are important radical transparency so i'd rather hire have somebody that owns the stuff that they don't know so those are all important things but that all fits under the teachable fit umbrella so everybody's got these mental checklists of things that they want in a candidate screw all that hire the person that has the motor and the attributes that are required for success and can be taught the mechanics of the job That person will outperform somebody that actually has all of the paper requirements, the time and seat requirements of your ideal mindset, but that doesn't guarantee that that's going to be successful. So hire for the attributes that you need versus what the profile dictates you should hire. Hopefully that makes sense. Uh,
0: Absolutely. And in in fact, if anyone is interested in this area, then I run a program called uh, Hiring Winners which is all about the predictive hiring, building it from the job to be done backwards and giving you the framework. And yes, it is a shed load of work when you first do it. But once you've done it, then you're going to save yourself vast amounts of work because you're not going to have to fire and replace them several times. And you're not going to have to make up the the target that they missed. And you're not going to have to replace the people that they pissed off and created poor morale and so created a a revolving door. So on that note, Jim, how can people get hold of you?
1: I'm uh, I'm almost everywhere. So easiest place is on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there. I post every day. You can also find me on the Cascading Leadership Podcast. That's available on all your podcast platforms. It's on YouTube. Talent Strategy 60 is a LinkedIn live show, which I'm the co-host and uh, co-founder of. So beyond that, I mean... Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm on all sh- social platforms with the exception of like Twitter and Instagram. So there you go.
0: Okay, excellent. So Dr. Jim Canetrial, thank you very much.
1: No, it was a great, uh, great hanging out with you and chatting. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Thanks for having me. And I'm pretty sure if uh, there are other conversations, we could talk for hours about that sort of stuff too.
0: <laughs> excellent, Jim. Thanks. So this is Marcus Cappy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who would benefit from it. If you know someone who's about to start a recruitment process, then please have them listen and either get in touch with me or with Jim. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus, at last-last.com, and there will be links in the blurb for getting in touch with me to talk about coaching and training. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.